0: This evening, I hope you, uh, you have your Bibles with you. You can turn in them to First Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1. We are going through a series on the pastoral epistles, which of course include the letters to Timothy and the letter to Titus. We are making our way through this first letter to Timothy. We are still in the first chapter. It is, as I said this morning, it's not my intent to belabor uh, these series and get bogged down in them. However, uh, much of these early chapters have so much to cover. And especially here, uh, there's a lot here that Paul says. Uh, there's a lot here that Paul gets into, as we saw in the first week, that there is a lot of doctrine and theology and scriptural truths packed right in the very beginning of this letter. Right in the salutation, Paul is wanting to get across his message and get across the, the things that Timothy is, is being charged to hold dear. And then throughout the rest of this chapter, as we get into chapters 2 and 3 and 4 specifically, are a lot more practical, a lot more sort of rooted in uh, sort of everyday uh, um, everyday ministry, you might say. And so those, uh, of course, are a lot more practical truths and things that Paul is writing to them. Uh, but nevertheless, it's we, it's been, as I said, it's been a couple weeks since we last gathered on a Sunday evening. So you kind of, you might have forgotten where we've been. So uh, as I said, he packs a lot of truth in the... Salutation, And then in verses 3 through 11, he was talking about this contrast between uh, false teachers and what is, what is supposedly, according to Paul, sound doctrine. And I love that word, sound doctrine, because really what it means is healthy words. That's what sound means. It's meaning healthy or vibrant or, or lively. So lively, healthy words. These things that these men are teaching are unhealthy and in fact, I think it's either in this book or it's in 2 Timothy, he actually says that these truths or, the, or these false truth, uh, doctrines that are, that are being taught by these men are like a cantankerous infection. They, they, they cling to the church, and they infect it, and they make it uh, not useful or usable to God. And so in contrast to that unhealthy words of these false teachers is the healthy words of Christ... And so that's what he is charging Timothy to hold dear. That's what he will charge also to Titus. You will find a lot of what Paul is getting across to, to Timothy here is the same as what he's going to get across to Titus later on. But these letters really serve as, of course, doctrinal instructions, but also practical instructions for the church and for these young pastors And here, right in the middle of 1 Timothy chapter 1, we saw in verse uh, 10 that he says he's not to teach anything that is contrary, that he says at the end, contrary to sound doctrine. Resist that, Timothy. Stay firm in sound doctrine. Don't preach anything that's against it. Again, don't preach those unhealthy words. Um, Hold fast to the healthy words of God. Of course, as we know, that there's this burgeoning, growing sense of what we have called Gnosticism. It wasn't called that then, but we know that that's what it is now. This idea that there was this higher spiritual plane of truth and knowledge that you had to ascend to in order to come to a knowledge of saving faith. There's this barrage of falsehood, this attack and deceptive creeping of falsehood into the church. And as we noted, Timothy is being charged to now defend the faith. We noted that I think a couple weeks ago, the fact that this was a new sort of era of church ministry. It wasn't necessarily evangelistic in the sense that you're preaching good news to those who perhaps hadn't heard it. Now you're defending, you're being an apologist. You're defending the truth against falsehood. You're defending what God's word says against what man's words say. And that's why in verse 3, Paul charges him here, teach no other doctrine. Don't get distracted. Don't get deluded by all these things. Don't get uh, caught up by these teachers, as he says in verse 4, that do nothing but minister questions. They don't speak the truth. They just stir up speculation. They just stir up questions. They they teach all these things as if they are experts on the law. And they have no idea what they're talking about. That's what he says in verse 7. But then, so what we've really seen so far is a lot of what Timothy was not supposed to get himself into. But now, in verse 12, he really then gets into what Timothy was supposed to teach. After alluding a lot to what sound doctrine is not, I think really here what, you, what, what we have in verses 12 through 17, which is our text this evening, is really what sound doctrine is. Okay, so against all of these, uh, f- these uh, ideas, these fables as he calls them, these endless genealogies that just minister questions, instead of getting caught up in all of that, what was Timothy to cling to? What was Timothy in, uh, to preach in this church at Ephesus? Well, in contrast to these counterfeit doctrines that were being proclaimed by these false teachers, the gospel, the sound doctrine that Paul was committing to Timothy's trust, is chiefly concerned with sinners. I think that a lot of the Gnostics would advance the idea that it wasn't concerned with them. You had to get, again, you had to get to a higher spiritual plane of knowledge and truth and maturity. A higher spirituality. And so if, you are, if you're still in your sin, we, we don't want to talk to you. We don't want to speak to you. We don't want to have to have anything to do with you. And Paul asserts that nothing could be further from the truth. Why? Because his very life is a living testimony to the sound doctrine of God. And that's why he gets into his testimony right here. It might seem odd. To me it seems odd that you're in this pastoral letter... Again, a letter which uh, you're writing to a person who probably knows your story. Who probably knows everything that you've been through because of his countless years that he's been with you. And yet here, in this charge to Timothy, Paul gets into his story. Gets into his testimony. It might seem like a digression. Might might like seem that Paul is taking off the brakes, or taking off the gas, so to speak, on this pastoral charge, and now he's just going to get into telling his life story, but actually I think that digression is precisely the point. That his story, his story and experience of grace is precisely the sound doctrine that Timothy was to cling to. Not because it happened to Paul, but because this, as Paul says later on in verse 16, this is the pattern of God's mercy. Look at verse 12. Paul is expressing just immense gratefulness and thankfulness to God that he is allowed to serve him. And I think Christ Jesus our Lord. Who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Note, I think, again here, how distinct Paul's testimony is compared to the false teachers. Again, look at verse 7. They were desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. They sought after this acclaim. They were seeking after the prestige, the notoriety of being teachers and experts on things that they had no idea what they were talking about. They were desirous of that thing. And here Paul is saying that this ministry has nothing to do with me. I didn't get into it by myself, by my higher knowledge, by my higher understanding, by my abilities, by my strength, by my ability to speak. It's all of the Lord. He enabled me. He says, he has counted me faithful and he has put me into this ministry. Notice that. Right off the bat, he's getting across to Timothy that this whole thing that I am encompassed by has nothing to do with me. It's all of God. He has done this. He is the one that found me, that enabled me, that strengthened me. That's what that means. That, again, counted me faithful. It's the same idea of counting us righteous. It's a reckoning of righteousness. A reckoning of faithfulness. It's not that Paul was faithful in and of himself. It's that Jesus Christ has counted him, has reckoned him faithful for the ministry. It wasn't Paul's genius. It wasn't Paul's sophistication. It wasn't Paul's knowledge. It was Jesus' strength And faith that counted him faithful to be in this ministry. It was entirely Christ's doing. That's what he's getting across. It was Jesus who is doing this. He knows, Paul knows that his salvation is entirely undeserved. It doesn't doesn't come to him by any sense of deservedness, it's entirely undeserved. He intensifies that gratefulness in verse 13. Look at it with me. Who was before? A blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. He recollects his former life and he is further grateful. His, his gratefulness is intensified. He says, I know I don't deserve this position at all because I know who I was. I know the type of man that I was before Jesus invaded my life. And yet, that's how I'm just astounded that Paul is saying that I am put into this ministry in the first place. He says, I'm a, I was a blasphemer, I slandered and smeared the truth. I actually spoke out against it, and not only that I was a persecutor. I took action upon what I was smearing and and slandering, and I tyrannized and tormented the church and an in, in injurious now injurious is not a common english word we don 't use it a lot, so it actually doesn 't have a lot of it doesn 't grip us like it probably should, but really what he 's saying here is I was outrageous. Meaning, he was just, he was uh, prone to fits of rage. That's what that word is getting across to us. That he wasn't just a mild mannered man who just went about his persecution in just mild manners. He was outrageous. He was prone to fits of anger and rage, and that's what motivated him in his persecution and in his tyranny of the church. That's where we get... Look with me. We're going to look at a couple passages just to enhance this. Look at Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Paul makes no bones about his life. He is very clear with what and who he was. Here this is Luke writing, of course. Luke writing the book of Acts. And here he records, and Saul... Verse 1 of chapter 8. And Saul, that is Paul was consenting unto his death, that is, Stephen's death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women committed them to prison. He wasn't just sitting around talking bad against the church. He, as here, he is persecuting it and he is outraged against it, such that he is making havoc of the church, stirring up chaos, going into men's and women's houses and bringing them out and persecuting them. And in fact, yes, even executing them too, leading them to their deaths. Here, back in our text, he's exposing himself as one of God's worst, vilest opponents. Look over at the next chapter. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. I like how it translated for us. Getting across this idea that Paul was injurious, he was outrageous against the church, he says, the word says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were of men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Here Paul, it says he's breathing out threats, slaughters. It's part of his being that he is wreaking havoc on the church. Such that he is so zealous for this mission of persecution. That he's actually going to a higher authority to have permission to go to the next town and breathe more threats and slaughters against that village too. He's seeking religious approval to persecute these people who he calls of the way. Actually, that's a really good study. If you want to go through Acts, read about the fact that we're not often called, we who believe in Christ are not called Christians here in this book. We're often called people of the way, capitalized oftentimes. It's because it's the way of Jesus That's what it's referring to. When you see that, you have to think of people who know the truth of the resurrected Christ. And these very people are whom Paul is persecuting, who is breathing out threats and slaughters against them. We won't go through it, but Acts chapter 22 tells Paul's entire testimony, and you can read that. Acts chapter 22, 1 through 21, tells Paul is before a high priest and he's telling his testimony. But I think we often fail to grasp the reality of these scenes. I know I do. Why? Because we live in a country, God bless America, that we have not had come to this point in our religious life where we uh, have to fear being persecuted for our faith. There may come a day when that comes. There may come a day when we who believe in Christ, the resurrected Christ, will be persecuted for that very belief. But it hasn't come to that point yet. Thank God that we can come to a place in America where we can re- worship freely, with liberty, with confidence, with no fear that the government is going to come in and persecute us. But so I think I like to think of Paul's story also according to history, to get a better grasp of the terror of what he is doing to the church. That's because I think you have to think of Paul here, or Saul as he's known at this point in his life, you have to think of him more of like like a Gestapo agent in Hitler's armed forces over in Nazi Germany. Oh. The Gestapo were sent into Jewish homes, searching out Jewish refugees, hauling them out, either killing them on the spot or bringing them to concentration camps. He was, uh, Himmler, the main man that was ahead of all of these uh, very, very evil men, the secret state police of Hitler's Nazi state, the Gestapo, they were, for all intents and purposes, terrorists, going into people's houses, Dealing out horrific and brutal crimes on men and women and children. That is who Paul is. That's what he was doing to the church. That's the type of terror and horror and havoc that he is wreaking and dealing out on these people who claimed to believe in Jesus. I think about that because I think about also that if that were happening to me, would I be so confident in my belief in the way... That I would be okay with that. Would I be so confident that, that, that what this word says is true. That what these people around me are telling me is true. That I would be okay with dying for that person named Jesus. Who died a couple of years ago on this cross. And I was told that he was a criminal. But here these apostles are telling me that he's not. That he is the savior. That he is the Messiah. I think about the faith of this early Church. To endure such horror, such terror. This is Paul. Any chance he got, he sought out to persecute this church. He sought out to persecute people of this way. Look at Galatians chapter 1. Here he tells a little bit of his story again in this letter. Look at Galatians chapter 1 verse 13. He says... For ye have heard of my conversation, that is my life in times past, in the Jews' religion. How that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. Beyond measure he was laying waste to the church. This is Paul. The very Paul who is now writing this letter to Timothy, who is encouraging him to graciously, tenderly fight for the very truth that he was attacking the church for. Think about the change in Paul's life. I think this, uh, uh, thinking about Paul humanly, I find it very hard to believe that Paul ever forgave himself for what he did. Such is why it's in a lot of his letters. Such is why he remembers it so often. Such is why I think in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 9. He says and he calls himself the least of all the apostles. And yet here he is probably the most prolific of the apostles. Planting churches. Establishing churches. Helping pastors. Preaching the gospel. And yet he calls himself the least of the apostles. Why? Because he knew who he was. He remembered the person that he was before that intervention of Jesus on the road to Damascus. I often think about that too. He's on the road to persecute more Christians. And that's the very spot where Jesus claims him. Paul, Paul, why persecutest thou me? He's on the way. He's on the road to persecute more that are of this faith. And that's where Jesus claims him. Where Jesus captures him. He knew his past. Paul knew who he was. He makes no bones about the fact that he was a shameful, sordid human being who lived a life of wretchedness. I often think too, going back, put yourself in this first century time. Think about the, the idea of Paul, Saw this guy who has uh, committed such horrors and travesties on the church. Yes, perhaps even people whom you know personally he has drug off and killed and executed. And now he's claiming to preach the very things that he was executing people for. Don't you think that a lot of people were curious of Paul, were suspicious of Paul? All right, Paul, I know what you're doing. (laughs) Look at Acts chapter 9. You might be there already or have a finger there. Uh, Look at Acts chapter 9. This was the case. This is what Paul was up against. (laughs) At the early part of his ministry, people were suspicious of this guy who was was before wreaking havoc on the church, is now seeking to help the church. Look at verse 21. Excuse me, verse 20. And straightway he, that is Saul, preached Christ in the synagogues. That he is the son of God. Isn't that amazing? Right away after Paul has been saved and he goes to Ananias and all the events there. Right away he goes into the synagogues and he preaches. And notice what he preaches. He preaches Christ. Verse 21. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. This is Paul. He was so passionate about God's forgiveness because he knew that God's forgiveness was his only lifeline. That's why he's telling Timothy here, this is who I was and this is who I am now. You have to believe me, Timothy. This is the truth of sound doctrine. That sound doctrine deals with sinners because sinners are all that there are and I was one. I know that I am one. Despite his past. Back in 1 Timothy. Despite all of those sordid uh, evil events in Paul's past. He says here that he obtained mercy. And that he was put into the ministry. Look at verse 14. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This Persecutor this tormentor This terrorist of the faith Is now Proclaiming the abundant Grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ They abounded in Paul's life And in fact the phrasing here Where it says the exceeding Abundant uh, with faith And love which is in Christ Jesus That just means it's just losing words To express how abounding It is It's, it's abounded And it's super abounded We can't even contain how much it abounded in Paul's life. That's what he's trying to get across to Timothy. It's such an amazing thing, my dear brother Timothy, that this love and faith abounded to me, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an outrageous terrorist of the church, and yet I obtained mercy, not because of me, but because of the abounding faith and love of Christ. He was utterly changed. He was utterly changed by that person on the road to Damascus. He was utterly changed by the pardon that that Christ gave him. The Christ who invaded his life on that road is the very person he knew who saved him. It was none other than God his savior. Christ his hope. Remember go back to verse 1 where he says by the commandment of God our savior. He knew who met him on that road. It wasn't just an angel, it wasn't just his imagination, it wasn't just an angelic figure, it was Christ. And it was Christ, the Son of God, who is God. And it's because of this testimony here that now we get to verse 15. Which, I would say, is the truth of truths of the gospel. This is a faithful saying, he says, and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. This is a sound doctrine. Timothy, this is what you are to preach. That Christ came for sinners, and sinners are all that there are. This is the gospel in a single sentence. This is the truth of what Paul was trying to get across on all of his letters that the gospel is for sinners. Sinners that are saved and sinners that are unsaved, but yes, it's for sinners of all stripes and backgrounds. This is the faithful saying. That terminology, that phrase, faithful saying, by the way, is unique and significant because it only appears in these letters. This idea of faithful sayings. It only appears in these letters and then in Titus. And I think that's interesting. Because you have to think about what's happening at this time again. Go back. Uh, The the doctrine of the apostles is not just being uh, spoken. It's being written down. About this time it is often believed that Mark, the apostle John Mark, is uh, following Peter and writing down the gospel which would become known as the gospel of Mark. Things are being written and codified for the church. So here Paul, I think, is also fighting against these false written gospels. He's saying, contrary to these, you have to believe this to me. This is a faithful saying. This is a true apostolic doctrine. This is something that you build the church on. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he says, like I've been telling you, Timothy, I was the chief of sinners. And in fact, if you, uh, if you read how he says this, he's actually saying, I am the chief of sinners. Meaning in the present tense. That he considers himself a sinner saved by grace and yet he is still a sinner. He knows that this grace of the Lord Jesus which abounded in his life on that road to Damascus. Is the same grace that he is now fervently praying to believe and trust in even now. Because he is the chief of sinners. Much like in uh, Luke chapter 18 where we have the prayers of the Pharisee and the publican, right? Right? And the publican says his prayer. Lord have mercy on me. Not just a sinner as it's often translated. It's the sinner. Lord have mercy on me. The sinner. The one that in his mind. Put Christ on the cross. And here he is. I'm the chief sinner. I'm the worst of the worst. This is his sound doctrine. This Timothy. This is what you cling to. That the gospel is. Is for sinners. And in fact if you go back to Matthew. Right, let me read it. I just thought of it. Matthew. You don't have to turn there. I'll just try and read it really quickly. Matthew chapter 1. We get the vision of, of uh, Mary being told that she is pregnant with Jesus. Look at verse 20, 21. Or you, uh, I'll read verse 21. And she shall bring forth a son And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. From the very beginning, this has been Jesus' mission. This, as we noted this morning, this is Jesus' assignment. And here Paul is doubling down on it. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he says, of whom I am chief. And no doubt, I think he was trying to get across to Timothy that you are a chief sinner too. This is, I think, the key to discipleship. The key to being a disciple of Christ in the church is seeing yourself as the worst sinner that you know. I think I, 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 think I referenced this a while. I have a friend who, who wrote this funny quote. It always strikes me funny. that He, he quotes um, that all have fallen and come short of the glory of God, but that hasn't stopped us from comparing distances. <laughs> I think that's very true. Just like the Pharisee and the publican, right? Thank God that I'm not like that guy over there. I have my faults. But I'm not as bad as him. I may, I may lust after this person who's not my wife. But at least I haven't committed adultery. I may get angry with my kids. But at least I haven't hit another person. You see... We are all the worst sinners that we know. Or at least we ought to be. We all ought to have this prayer of Paul's, the prayer in our own life. That we are the chief of sinners. That we are the worst sinners we know. Again, this is what makes Paul's ministry so unlike the false teachers, the Gnostics, that were gaining popularity. Why? Because Paul, unlike them who were founding their whole uh, sort of claim to fame by dazzling people with their superior knowledge. Here, Paul is making his claim to fame in his confession of weakness. That me, as an apostle, I'm not even worthy to be an apostle I'm not even worthy to preach this message. Why? Because I'm the chief of sinners. His entire ministry was built upon the fact that he confessed his weakness. Not that he showcased his superior knowledge. He wasn't looking to impress. He was just looking to inform people. Of this Jesus who saved sinners. Of this Jesus who saved him. And this is the same salvation that we have. And this is the same reason why in verse 16 where he says that this is why my salvation spe- experience is a pattern to all them who believe. Look what he says. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. A pattern not because he is some special uh, super Christian. A pattern because in his life is showcased the very fact of Jesus coming and saving sinners just because he, uh, that's his mission. The way in which God rescued Paul is the same way in which we are all rescued. This is God's pattern of grace. He comes to sinners because sinners are all that there are. Let me read you a verse. It harkens back to this mission of Jesus. Again, look, this is Luke 5, verse 32. The word of God says, I came not to call righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the mission of Christ. This is the pattern of Jesus, that he saves sinners. And he transforms sinners. Sinners. I think very, very emphatically, very, very uh, adamantly, that the fact that Paul is writing about his testimony, he's writing about the fact that this amazing uh, uh, grace that redeems him is the same grace that transforms him. And he's saying that this, Timothy, cling to this doctrine, stick to this truth, preach these healthy words. You see, because contrary to the speculation that was driven up, that was stirred up by the false teachers, Paul is saying here that I know who I am. And I know who I was. He was firm in this. He He wasn't questioning it. He didn't stir up questions. He stirred up transformation by this gospel that he was preaching. He knew the type of sinner he was. But he also knew the type of savior that he had. And this... Is the mercy of God. Cling to this Timothy. Don't let anyone distract you from this Timothy. Such is our charge as well. I love this quote from a writer who has passed away. He said this. A church that can't manage to stay in communion with sinners. Makes about as much sense as a carpenter. Who can't stand to handle wood. (laughs) We often think opposite of that, don't we? That we've got to get away from all these sinners. That we've got to get away from all these people who have rough and sordid paths. That's our mission. The building up of the saints. The equipping of the saints to reach the same loss that Jesus was going through. That's the mission of the church. That's our mission. That's the mission of this church and any other church that preaches the sound doctrine of God. That's what they are charged to do. To stay in communion with sinners. Sinners that are members of the church. And sinners that are outside of the church. Either way we are always dealing with sinners. And that's a good thing. Because the gospel is for sinners. Again I hate to repeat this. Because sinners are all that there are. This is why Paul is now marveling at this redemption. And he erupts in verse 17 quickly as we close. Now unto the king eternal. Immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That amen, I think, really discloses the fact that Paul has, yes, in his mind, taken a digression in what he is saying. And he kind of closes off this section really quick. Uh, Let me get back now, Timothy, to what I really wanted to say to you. (laughs) He says, this is the amazing God who saved me. He knew who it was. The immortal, invisible, the only wise God, the eternal king of glory himself. It was King Jesus, the savior who was crucified, the God who came down. This is the God who saved him. And he says, this is what we preach. This is what the church clings to. Timothy, stay in this. Say, worshiping this God who, like me, plucked me out of depravity. This is the same pattern that he does with all other sinners. He plucks them out of their depravity and puts them into ministry. Puts them into service. This is what God does with all sinners. He intervenes. He intervades. By his grace in each of our lives. And this is the truth that we cling to. This is the truth that we proclaim, that Jesus Christ saved sinners, because sinners are all that they are. Let us pray.